I'd like for you to take your copy of God's Word, join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. As a, as a pastor, there are times that as you preach, you preach to the church family. That is, to our congregation, those who are members, those who are saved, those who know Christ. Sometimes those messages help disciple us, they help grow us in our faith, they challenge us, sometimes they may even rebuke us, but it's all through the Holy Spirit. So sometimes a pastor speaks to the church family, and then there are other times that when the minister speaks, it is not directed as much to the church family as it is to people who are lost. And that is my heart this morning, and that is where this message is aimed today. Either those who may be here in this service that do not know Christ as your Savior and you have that, do not have that hope, or those who may watch this by television later on, or those who may pull it up online and watch it online. I want to speak to you today about the greatest decision that you will ever make. So again, I'm talking today primarily to the person who does not know the Lord. And I'm going to ask you as our church family, you be praying for the folk who may be in that shape today that has never made their decision. So as I preach through this this morning, you help me, all right? And you pray for those who are lost. Pray for those who are lost that you work with. Pray for those who are lost in your family. Pray for those who are lost that we traffic with every day and may not even know about their spiritual condition. But I want you to know the only hope that any of us have is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You will make some important decisions in life. Where you go to college, that'll be an important decision. Or the vocation you choose, that'll be an important decision. Who you marry, that'll be an important decision. Where you choose to live, that'll be an important decision. important decision. But I want you to know that life's greatest decision is what you have done with Jesus Christ, God's only Son. So I want you to read with me or follow with me as I read this morning. John chapter 3. Very familiar passage, beginning in verse number 14. The Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here we are in the season of Lent. Moving toward Easter Sunday in just a few weeks. And it is during this season that we focus more on the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus than perhaps any other time throughout the year. We focus on the victory that we have in Jesus and the resurrection because without his resurrection, the Bible says, we would all be without hope. When God spoke this world into existence, the first people that he created were Adam and Eve. God placed them in a beautiful garden with everything that they could need for their enjoyment. The only restriction was they were to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, we don't know how long they remained in the garden in that state, that original creative state, but eventually the scripture tells us that they succumbed to the temptation of the devil. They partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and when they did, God had already said to them, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. And when they did that, Adam and Eve plunged themselves 
and the entirety of the human family into sinfulness, disobedience, rebellion, and enmity with God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, now listen carefully. When they sinned in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't just restricted to them. But all future generations would suffer the consequence of Adam and Eve's sinfulness. You and I today, we were born as sinners into this world. You know that? We're all born as sinners. But not only were we born as sinners, we have all chosen to be sinners. Because there's not a one of us here today that in the face of doing right and wrong, there's been some point in our life when we have chosen to do wrong. So we are sinners by birth and we are sinners by choice. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it opened a Pandora's box of evil into this world. Every heartache, every disease, every act of violence, every unfairness, every every heart heartache that that is known to man originated from original sin from Adam and Eve and you and I have been in that backwash ever since now God could have just simply wiped the slate clean and he could have started over but the scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he sought to restore mankind back to good favor with him. He sought to restore Adam and Eve, and still today he reaches to my life and your life with a plan to restore us into fellowship with him. Now, I didn't read the entirety of the narrative here in John chapter 3. It is very familiar, and most of us know the ins and outs of what's taken place in this third chapter of John. It's one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. In verse number 1, the Bible says, There is a man who is a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus and inquires to him about eternal life. So you will note in that first verse that he was a Pharisee. Now those of you, you've been in church, you know what a Pharisee is. You know what the biblical definition of that is. But maybe if you're listening online, you've never heard that term before, or you don't know what that term means. I'm preaching to you today, so I want to tell you what that is. The Pharisees were a group of men who lived in the first century, who devoted themselves to the law of God. They wanted more than anything to preserve God's law. They were very devout in their belief system. They were very pious. They would study the Bible for hours of day, what they had as the Bible, their Torah, for hours a day. They would give of their resources. And uh, they had a strong conviction about morality. And what the Pharisees sought to do that actually became a pride issue for them started out good, but it kind of devolved into a legalistic perspective toward life, meaning this. They wanted to so preserve the law of God and kind of build a fence around God's law to keep anybody from breaking God's law, pure motives to start with, that they, they, they uh, uh, issued or came up with what they call oral tradition, the Mishnah, which was a series of commentaries based on God's law. Let me, let me define it this way for you, illustrate it this way. God said, thou shalt not work or do any work on the Sabbath day. You remember that as one of the original Ten Commandments. Well, the Pharisees thought that they would describe and define what work really means. All right, because it might mean different things to different people. So God says, don't work on the Sabbath day. So they had 39 Listen, they had 39 separate categories that would define what work is and is not. How far you could walk on the Sabbath day. How many letters you could write on the Sabbath day. 
Things like you couldn't put in your false teeth on the Sabbath day because that would be work. When we were in Israel, you remember, on the Sabbath day, the elevator automatically stopped on each floor because you were not allowed to push the button if you were Orthodox Jew because that's considered work on the Sabbath day. So this Mishnah, or this oral tradition of the Jews, outlined these 39 separate categories of how to define work. Now that was just on that one law. And of all the laws of God, these Pharisees had incorporated literally thousands and thousands of man-made laws. And over time, they became more interested in protocol, procedure, and the oral traditions or the traditions of the elders than they were the spirit of the law. And it really did become a, a, a pride issue for them. In other words, they were looking at one another and say, oh, you're doing this and you're not doing that and you're not as holy as me and you got to work in this life, uh, in this area of your life. And that created a rub between them and Jesus because Jesus was looking on the inside and they were looking on the outside. To them, nobody could measure up to how holy they were. To them, nobody was quite to their level. So this created quite a bit of controversy and division between Jesus and these first century Pharisees. So this man named Nicodemus in the opening verses wants to inquire to Jesus about what it means to have eternal life. Well, verse number two says that he comes to Jesus under the steel of night. Perhaps he did not want to be seen talking to Jesus by the other Pharisees. Maybe he was intimidated by, by their pressure that they put on him. So he waits till it gets dark. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and under the cover of darkness, he begins to talk to him about what I've described to you this morning as the greatest decision a person would ever make. How do you enter the kingdom of God? What is necessary to be saved? In verse 3, Jesus begins his answer. And let me read it for you. Notice verse 3, he said, Jesus answered and said to him, Verily I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now notice, Jesus did not say, except a man be good, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't say, except a man try harder. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't say, except a man have the greatest intentions in the world, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What did he say? He said, now listen carefully. Except a man is born again, he cannot see the imperative. He cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again is a synonym for being saved. If a person is not saved, they could be the most wonderful person we know. If a person is not saved, they do not have God living in their heart. If a person is not saved, they can have good intentions, they could be a good parent, they could pay their taxes on time, but if they're not saved, that means they don't have God, God's spirit living in their heart. And Jesus said, without that spirit living in your heart, you will never see the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's ultimate rule over this universe, but it is also the rule of God within a person's heart. So unless a person is saved, Jesus said, you'll never see the kingdom of God. So what was Nicodemus' natural reaction? Nicodemus says this. 
Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how do I get born again? What do I do? Do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? It's rhetorical. He's not expecting Jesus to give him an answer to, de to define that. Uh, what he's saying is, it's, it's hyperbole. Do you think I can go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And what Jesus was saying to him is this, no. It's not that you go back to your mother's womb and be born a second time. It is when you were born physically, you were introduced to this physical world of ours. But to be born again means that you are born spiritually. And now you are introduced to the spiritual realm or the spiritual world or the kingdom of God that wants to take up residence and abode within your heart and life. So from verses 5 all the way down to verse 21, Jesus is answering Nicodemus' question about how to be born again. And that's where we're going to focus our time this morning and follow the words of Jesus as he talks about life's greatest decision. So if you take notes, the first thing I want you to jot down today is, first of all, please note that salvation originated with God, not with man. It originated with God, not with man. Do you know that every religion in the world dictates how man would earn God's favor? And usually it is through man's acts of devotion and service and things like that. It is something that you have to do in order to earn God's favor. Let me give you some illustrations. Hindus yearn for God's blessing, so they offer daily sacrifice at their preferred shrine. And I'm not criticizing throwing rocks or anything like that against any other faith in the world. I'm just telling you what they believe. Sikhs worship one divine light, but their acceptance is based upon their dedication to a specific code of conduct and their diet. Islam teaches that people must submit to Allah and perform the five uh, religious acts in order to please God. But even then, there's no guarantee of salvation. Orthodox Jews, they wait for the return of Messiah and they perform all kinds of religious ceremonies in hopes of earning God's favor. And in all of these religions, there is a constant, consistent theme, and that is human beings reaching up to God and trying to find favor and trying to find hope and trying to be rescued by God, but it's to no avail. Only Christianity tells us that where we could not reach up to God, that God in his magnanimous grace and favor, he reached down to us in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never be good enough to get to God. Isn't that right, church? We could never do enough good work. We could never pay enough penance. We could never give enough money. We could never uh, serve enough duty. We were all spiritually bankrupt before God. And all of us could never be possibly able to reach up to God. But God so loved the world. I want you to know he sent his son, uh, the Lord Jesus, on Christmas Day to come down into this world. And it was God's attempt to reach down to my life and to your life. And to show us his love and his plan for us. Listen, it didn't originate in the mind of man. Man says you got to work for it, you got to earn it, you got to pay for it, you got to do this and that. God says, no, I want to give it to you because I love you. You see, the gospel story is a story of a God who created this world. And even though it fell into disfavor with him, he loved this world enough to redeem the world back to himself. This gospel story tells us of a wonderful, loving, magnanimous king who so loved the world that he left his throne to take up a cross and die for the sins of this world. And it tells of a king's return and that one of these days he will establish his righteous rule and forever and ever 
He will rule this world of ours in ultimate peace. Right now, we're in a mess, and the world is in a mess. And if you don't know Christ today, your life, as good as it might look on the outside, your life is headed for a mess. Listen, the key word in this narrative is a key word. It is the word believe. Let me show you. Go down to verse number 12 and look at, um, look at what Jesus said. You find the word uh, mentioned over and over. Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Go down to verse number 15. Whosoever, again Jesus is speaking, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Go to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, listen you can put your name in there, right? That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You find it three times in verse 18. He that believes on him is not condemned. He that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So as Jesus is trying to answer this question of Nicodemus, how, how do I get born again? Really it means, how can I be born from above? Jesus is saying, it is not that you enter into your mother's womb a second time, but it is that you believe, that you believe that God loves you. Do you believe that today? That you believe that God loved you enough that he would send his son for you. Do you believe that today? That you would believe that, that not only did he send his son for you, but that his son would go to the cross and die on a brutal Roman cross for your sins and mine. The Bible says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all that he'd paid in his body the sin debt of the entire world. Do you believe that? And then do you believe that Jesus was buried and that on Easter Sunday he rose again? Listen, if he was dead today, he couldn't do anything for us. Amen, church? But he rose again on Easter Sunday, giving eternal life to all who would come to him by faith. So a man uh, gains eternal life not by doing, but by believing. Believing in the finished work of Jesus because it is a work of God, not a work of man. You see, man-made religions always attempt to get to heaven. Always. But salvation is accomplished by God coming down to where we are. In fact, let me draw your attention to verse number 14 at this illustration that Jesus gives. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's almost like a parenthetical statement inside this longer narrative. It is a reference to a Bible story back in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the children of Israel were moving through the wilderness, wandering on their way to the promised land. They, like us, were complaining they, like us, were given to discouragement. Uh, they, like us, were, uh, had lives filled with conflict and troubled emotions. And they began to complain against God. They began to complain about Moses. Nothing Moses could do would satisfy them. They began to complain about God. Nothing God could do to sat would satisfy them. I mean, God gave them manna to eat, and he gave them water from the rock. And they said, we're so sick of this manna. And, and when, you get, when you get pinched 
Or when you get aggravated, suddenly everything is magnified and everything is, is bad. And that's what happened to these Hebrews. And because of their complaining, the Bible says that God sent fiery serpents that were inside the camp and that bit the people. You remember this story, right? And that uh, the people repented and they cried out to God and asked for forgiveness. The remedy for this was God told Moses, go fashion a serpent, just like what you saw crawling around on the ground, just like what you saw moving in and out of the tents of the people. Go take a, 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 some brass, and I want you to build this brazen serpent. And I want you to set it up high on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp, where the sun's rays can bounce off of this, and everybody in the camp uh, can see this brazen serpent. I find it interesting, uh, well, and then God says, and whoever looks at that is going to live. And I find it interesting that the very thing that caused the death of the people was going to be um, a symbol for their, for their healing. Uh, the symbol for healing, the caduceus in the medical field, it was the, the, uh, the staff of Hermes in Greek mythology that had the snakes intertwined around that. You remember that? Well, it was a symbol of healing. The Lord says, Moses, you take this brazen serpent, put it up on a pole. Anybody who looks at that will live. And it's the very thing that had bitten them that they were now to look to and live. Why do I say that? Because here's what that represents. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, even so would the Son of Man, that's another title for Jesus in the Scripture, even so would the Son of Man be lifted up. The very thing that caused our death, sin, would now be lifted up on the cross. You say, Pastor, you mean Jesus is our sin? Every sin of everybody in the world, he embodied that on the cross my sin and yours were lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus died, listen, he wasn't dying for something he did. He was dying for what you did wrong. Amen? He's dying for what I did wrong. And the very thing that would cause our death, sin, would now be lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus said that, that, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that only by looking to him, and receiving his death on the cross as a payment for our sin, do we have eternal life? So what is eternal life, you ask? Eternal life is not just something that starts when you die. Do you know if you're a Christian, your eternal life has already started? Did you know that? It is a quality of life as well as a quantity of life. Your eternal life means the moment you're saved that you really begin to live. Now, we know one of these days we're going to die. And when we die, our spirit and our soul goes to meet the Lord. Our body goes back to the ground. And then one day, that spirit and that soul will be reunited with a resurrected body. The body will be raised in a glorified state. We will live for the, with the Lord for all eternity. And uh, nobody can define how long eternity is. The greatest decision that you will ever make will determine where you will spend eternity. Will you spend it in heaven with God? Or will you spend eternity in a place called hell? Now I want you to know, I want you to know without any apology whatsoever that hell is a very, very real place. And it is where real people go who know the Lord, who, who, excuse me, who do not know the Lord. Listen, nobody deserves to go to heaven, none of us. 
And the only way we will ever get there is through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we reject that, our destiny is forever sealed in a place called hell where there is eternal separation from God. There could be nothing more horrific than that proposition. To spend eternity without God, without the love of God, without the presence of God, and to be ultimately separated from Him. That's why I call this the greatest decision that you will ever, ever, ever make. To go spend eternity with God or spend it eternally separated from God. So salvation originated with God, not with man. But secondly, I want you to note that it is accomplished by Christ not man. Salvation not only originated with God, but it is accomplished by Christ. In fact, go back to that verse 14, and I want you to circle that word must, imperative. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, or another reference of him being lifted up on the cross. So your question may be today, and I had this question before I got saved, is why? Why was it necessary that Jesus die. Why was that necessary? Well, because God had decreed that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Well, I could shed my own blood, perhaps, and die for my own crimes. Well, where's that going to get me? Dead. There had to be someone from outside the human family, Jesus who had blood other than tainted blood traced back to Adam and Eve, coursing through his veins. That's why his father was God. He had holy blood coursing through his veins, and when he came into this world, he was the absolute perfect sinless substitute for the sins of all the world. And when he shed his blood on the cross, I want you to know it was perfect blood that was spilled for our salvation. The Bible says in the book of 1 Peter that Jesus did not sin neither was there any guile found in his mouth. 1 John 3 says, In him was no sin. And on the days of his trial, Pilate came out and he washed his hands in a basin of water and he said, I find no fault in this man. Do you know Jesus was the only perfect person who ever lived? You look hard enough, you'll find something wrong with everybody. Because everybody is a sinner. Everybody has feet of clay. Everybody has fallen. Only Jesus was the perf only perfect person who ever lived. Talking to Brian Dindle this week, and uh, he sent me a text. Some of you may have gotten it as well. We always kind of send things back and forth to each other that bless our heart. And his text said something to this effect. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer is, they don't. That's only happened one time in history, and he volunteered for the job. Isn't that right? He was the only good person who ever lived. And he went to the cross. And on the cross of Calvary, he accomplished in his death what my death could never, ever accomplish. He didn't come to the world to sentence it to death. The world was already condemned. He came to the world to save us from sin. Look in verse number 16, probably the most famous verse in all of the Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've given you this before, but note it again. Break that verse down this way. God, the greatest lover of mankind, so loved, that's the greatest degree. The world, that's the greatest audience. That he gave, that's the greatest act in history when he gave his son. His only begotten son, that's the greatest gift. Keep reading. That whoever, that's the greatest opportunity. Whoever believes, that's the simplest act to gain eternal life. Whoever believes in him, that's the greatest attraction. Should not perish, that's the greatest promise. But have, that's the greatest certainty, eternal life. And friends, that is the greatest possession. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So to believe, the greatest decision you'll ever make is to believe in Jesus' death on the cross was payment for what you had done wrong. you got to believe that. And you got to trust that. And you have to believe it not just with your head, but with your heart. There's an old saying that many people will miss heaven by 18 inches, the, diff the distance from their heart to their head. Oh, they have the facts. But they have never followed up those facts with the appropriation of asking God to come into their life to save them. To save them. I'll illustrate it this way. When my son Joshua, who now lives in Texas, was a young man, or younger man, he was 16 years old, I believe, and uh, wanted to get his pilot's license. And it was part of a, a program that he had in his high school. So uh, he began to go to Smith Reynolds Airport, and uh, he began to go through flight training. And I remember watching him as he would study those uh, flight manuals, and I would watch him as he went through his ground school, and uh, I tried to support him, Tina and I did, as he began to fly. And then we were there when he did his solo. Never forget watching him fly over, and my wife said, he's just going entirely too fast, all right? But anyway, anyway, we were watching him fly and you know, kind of praying for him and kind of wishing that he would choose a different career path that wasn't so risky. But we were praying for him and trying to support him and trying to affirm him. And I'll never forget the day that he got his, his pilot's license. And he said to me, come on, Dad, let's go flying. Now listen, I believed in my head that he was accomplished enough to have a, a pilot's license. I believe that he had done all of the, the, the work necessary to know the protocols in case there was an accident, what he needed to do. And I believed in my head that he was safe and that he was particular and that he was going to take care of me. But I want you to know, I really began to see the chasm between my intellectual belief that he was an accomplished pilot and then my faith that would cause me to set my butt down that plane seat and put on the seatbelt. I struggled with that. That my 16-year-old was going to fly me in an airplane? The kid I used to ground, and the kid I used to fuss at, is now going to fly me in an airplane? And I could believe it all that I wanted to believe it, but I never affirmed my complete faith in him until I sat down in that airplane and I buckled that seatbelt and said, okay, Joshua, my life is in your hands. Listen, I can know all the facts about Jesus I can, I can know through an intellectual ascent that he came to the world, that he died. And I can even know the Easter story front and back and sideways. But until I repent of my sins and ask Jesus to come into my life and trust him uh, with all of my life and all of my eternity, then I would go to hell 
with a head knowledge of Jesus, but no conversion in my heart and life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, to be born again, it's not the facts that you know. It's not the information that's been assimilated into your mind, but it is a heart change where you turn from your wickedness and you repent of your sins and you invite Jesus to come into your life and you say to him, what you did for me on the cross, I'm now trusting that with my life. I'm trusting my whole eternity, aren't you? On what Jesus did on the cross. Look in verse 17 very quickly. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why do you suppose Jesus said that verse to Nicodemus? Because the Jews believed that when Messiah came, he was going to destroy the Gentiles. He was going to destroy the unbelievers. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Amos, Woe to you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness, not light. And the Jews believed, oh man, when Messiah comes, he is, just going to, he is just going to level this place and we're going to get to rule and reign with him. And Jesus says, oh, listen, I'm coming into the world not, con not to condemn you, not to beat you up for being lost, not for having the habits that lost people have because that's what lost people do, not to shame you for being lost. He said, I'm coming not to condemn the world, but I'm coming to rescue you. I'm coming that the world might be saved. You know, <clears throat> salvation was originated in the mind of God, but it was accomplished by what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen, he said, no man comes to the Father but by me. If the Bible taught us another way of salvation, I would preach that other way of salvation. If the Bible taught us there were multiple ways to be saved, I would teach and want to be faithful to teach what the Bible says. But the Bible says there is one way to be saved, and that is through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to make that decision to be saved, it is the greatest decision that you will ever ever, ever make. So it originated with God. It was accomplished by Christ. Let me give you a third point. Salvation appropriated is the only hope for man. Remember, we looked at that slide. Our hope is in him, in Christ. Look in verse number 17 again. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him Look at this now, might be saved. That's me and you and everybody. He that believes on him is not condemned. Listen, by the way, let me stop there. Isn't that wonderful news this morning? He that believes on him is not condemned. We're not, not under condemnation today. Praise the Lord for that. We're not under any kind of condemnation. He that believes on him is not condemned. Now look at this. But he that doesn't believe on him is condemned already. Because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Salvation is the only hope, salvation appropriate is the only hope for the human family. If we're not saved, we're under condemnation and the judgment of God. If we are saved, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
believing faith, sitting down and buckling into that seat, if you will, is how we appropriate this good news of the gospel into our lives. Listen to Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know the last four words of that, of that passage? Thou shall be saved. Let me give you that again. If you confess with your mouth, that just simply means I agree with God. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he goes on to say in the next verse, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. How do we appropriate this salvation into our life? We believe. We agree with God, yes, I believe that Jesus came for me. Yes, I believe that I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe my only hope for eternity is, is to accept the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross is for me, and I accept that, and I believe it with my heart, and I ask Christ to come into my life and save me. If you've never done that, listen, you're missing out on the greatest decision that you could ever make. You may be thinking, Daryl, Pastor Daryl, what about Nicodemus? This religious Pharisee, did he make this decision? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because you know, you can read through chapter three, you don't find the answer to that. We don't know. I like to think that, yes, he made that decision, but we don't know. But there are some clues later on that help us understand. In fact, turn over to chapter 7 very quick, and I'm going to wrap up in about five minutes. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Chapter 7. There was a growing division when you come to chapter 7 among the people about Jesus. Some believed he was Messiah, some didn't, some accepted him, some rejected him. And there were, uh, in this division... Uh, this conflict or this growing conflict, great debate about who he was. Look in verse number 43 of chapter 7. So there was a division among the people because of him, Jesus. Some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never spake a man like this. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? I.e., what happened in chapter 3? Any of the Pharisees believed on him? Verse 49, but this people who knows not the law are cursed. Lo and behold, verse 50, Nicodemus, the same guy who first of all came to Jesus by night, said, being one of them, does our law judge any man before it hears him? and knows what, he, knows what he does. In other words, here we are a few chapters removed from chapter 3, and what do you find now? Not Nicodemus coming by night, but now you find Nicodemus speaking up for Jesus as if he is ready to defend him. Turn over a few more pages, and let me show you the development of this. Turn over to chapter 19. Very quickly, John chapter 19. And uh, in John chapter 19, when you get there, uh, Judas has already betrayed the Lord Jesus. He has already been sold into the hands of the Roman soldiers. Uh, one of his closest friends, Simon Peter, denies that he even knew him. Uh, he is led from the house of Caiaphas to the judgment hall of Pilate. In ridicule and mockery, they have placed a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed in his hand, and they mock him in every sense of the word. He is beaten. He is brutalized and he carries that old rugged cross down the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, to the hill of Golgotha. 
And if you're in chapter 19, go down to verse number 38 and look what happens. After this, the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, and he came and he took the body of Jesus. And there came also, lo and behold, Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night in chapter 3 and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight, and they took the body of Jesus, they wound it in linen clothes and spices, and the matter of the Jews to bury. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid, and they laid Jesus there, because the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was near at hand. So we don't know from chapter 3, that Nicodemus made that greatest decision of life to be saved. But it sure looks like it in chapter 7, right, as he stands to defend Jesus. And then by the time you get to John chapter 19, I'm personally convinced that he did make that decision because here he is at the death of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea, no longer afraid of the pressure of the religious crowd, but they take the body of Jesus and they wash the blood from the body, wrap him in linen garments, and this Pharisee named Nicodemus helps Jesus to be buried. Here's what he did. In my estimation, Nicodemus just believed. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that Jesus died for him. And he believed that Jesus was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Now listen. Do you believe that today? You might be here for the first time. You might have grown up in this church, but maybe you're here today, and you would say to yourself, yes, pastor, I believe that 110%. My prayer is everybody here believes that. But there may be someone here today who doesn't believe that. I want you to know God so loved you that he gave his son that if you would believe, you would never perish. I'm going to close with one of my favorite songs. It's an old hymn. Listen to these words. Now just listen carefully. Written by a blind hymn writer, by the way, Fanny Crosby. Now listen carefully. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Listen to the next verse. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every, here's the word, believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. No wonder she breaks out with that chorus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus, his Son, and give him the glory. Listen, great things he has done. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is so rich 
and we look at a passage that we're all so familiar with, but God, it speaks to us with new power every time we read it because it is your living word. So Lord, I ask right now, if there's anyone that, is, that has never made that greatest decision of life, that right now they would do that. So church, as we're all praying together, I want to say to those who may be listening later on by television or the internet, if, you don't, if you're not saved, you pray this prayer in your heart to God. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sins. And I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And I ask Jesus to come into my life and to be my Lord and Savior. If you said that prayer either here in this auditorium or wherever you find yourself today, I'd love to help you to know more and more about what it means to be a Christian. Take this invitation, God, now. Use it for your glory and your honor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.